got quite a grad. I wanted to take my own life a few times. I crashed my car, I fainted on the tube. But aside from the physical aspects, I just couldn't bear to live the way I was living anymore. I mean, I was just like a walking zombie. I guess there was a lot of self-punishment around, around Michael, my stepfather's death. Welcome to the Adversity to Advantage podcast. I'm Petra Belzebor, and this is the place to discuss tips, tricks, and hacks to build your resilience through your worst rock bottoms and get you to a place of success. I'll be interviewing people from all walks of life, professionals, individuals who've been through their own adversity, and allow them to share their authentic and real life stories, opinions, and ideas about how to utilize our worst rock bottoms and allow them to catapult us into success. Welcome to the show. Welcome everyone to the Adversity to Advantage podcast. And today I've got Laura Hearn on the other end. We had a little snippet of her uh, story on the This Can Happen conference recording that, uh, that was a few weeks ago. Um, but now we get to go deep. We get to hear the full story. So Laura, welcome to the show. Hi, Petra. Thanks for having me. I'm so happy that we've got you on again because I love your story and who you are at the moment and the things that you're doing, which is giving back, talking a lot about mental health. Um, give our listeners a little bit of an overview about who you are and what you're up to at the moment. Uh, okay, I'll try and do the short version. <laughs> so um, my day job, I'm a producer at the BBC in television news. Um, I've been there for quite a while now, went straight from university. But alongside that, I've kind of um, had a parallel life or journey um, and recovering from anorexia. Um, so, um, yeah, I mean, I was diagnosed in my late teens and, um, really just couldn't get the help that I needed on the NHS or, or even privately, really. Um, I was not classed as sick enough to be, um, taken as an inpatient on the NHS and thank God I wasn't because I think it probably would have come out worse. But, um, so really alongside my career at the BBC, I, um, I, yeah, I, I led this life where I was an, an existing, functioning, not very functioning, not existing really uh, very well anorexic. Um, I relapsed several times, uh, took time off um, and was just crippled loneliness in London when you're trying to make friends and most things involve around food and socialising and I would avoid all of those things. Um, and I was just a really sad human, a really angry human, um, didn't know how to navigate relationships. I was resentful. I, I just wanted to punish myself. I, yeah. And, and eventually when I was, um, in my twenties, I had a really bad relapse and, um, the therapist at the time I was seeing, he, he had met this woman in America who, uh, I said to my my mom, look, if there's any way you can get your daughter to go to the, the place that she founded, I think it would be really, you know, one of the best shot you could give give Laura. Um, and through some generous um, donations and eventually my mom selling her house to pay for my eight month stay there, um, it was by far the best, most um, nurturing place I'd ever been. And uh, yeah helped me gave me the tools to save my life yeah. I suppose um yeah, yeah. And, and it came back there I'm interested in this sort of double life thing that you talk about right 
because I definitely relate to that. And I think many people do, and it might be something very different than anorexia or an eating disorder, um, but people do, right? We, we live the, 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 the mask of what we need to do at work and how we need to show up for our families and underneath all sorts of things could be going on. So just take us back for a minute before we sort of go a little bit further in depth into your recovery journey. You said you got diagnosed around in your teens, but like in hindsight, did you, were there signs of, of something going on well before that? What, what do you recognize just, just from your childhood or, or, or maybe the, the lead up to the diagnosis? Yeah, I mean, I was quite, quite late di- being diagnosed. I was like 18 and um, that is quite late because I was like an adult, 17, 18. Um, but before that, I, had, I did have a kind of strange relationship with food. I felt like I was too big, like I was always taking up too much room, bigger than my peers. Um, I was slightly heavier maybe, and I, but I, I remember being kind of strange around food. I'd come home and pick at chocolate or cake but I wouldn't eat the whole thing because I've like convinced myself I hadn't had a whole like piece of cake or I'd eat big bowls of cereal until my stomach hurt and then sit on the toilet and and just pinch the tires <laughs> not being not being too graphic but pinch the tires around my waist and like feeling such dis- disgust of myself um and then I wouldn't really eat normal food but I guess everyone just thought I was kind of a bit greedy and you know puppy fat um but in hindsight I, it was a comfort eating thing I was very uh, sad around my my parents divorce and trying to um, uh, acclimatise living with a new stepfather and things. Um, wait, wait, wait. So, and, and I was bullied at school. How, how old were you when your parents divorced? Uh, seven, eight. Okay, so and, um, I guess I'm trying to help our listeners think, is there a cause for this? Or are some of us just born with kind of a mental health issue or, or something showing up in this way? Yeah. But, it's a way of coping, right? With no, I don't think I was... Well, I've learned now that, it's, you know, I, I developed an eating disorder because I had, um, I had three, I guess, three elements to it. I had the genetic predisposition. I'm quite shy. I'm sensitive. I'm perfectionist. Um, I'm, yeah, overly sensitive is what people call me, but <laughs> I think it's, I don't mind being, I, I, you know, being like that now. Um, and I guess... Uh, I like things in order. Um, I like to be liked. All those characteristics. And then when I was, and then when I was uh, eighteen, pretty much just shortly after I've been diagnosed, um, about six months before or a year before, my stepfather was killed suddenly in a car crash, um, and that was probably the catalyst for it. Um, I'd after he died, I went off to Australia and travelled for a year. Pretty much a few weeks after he died, I hadn't acknowledged his death. Um, my mum said, oh, you know, even at the funeral, your feet were up on the pews and you didn't, you showed no emotion. Um, and really my eating sort of started while I was traveling. I um, remember we were like sort of traveling on a shoestring really and went to an all you can eat Chinese buffet. And never had I had this um, inclination to do anything before, but I hadn't even eaten too much, but I was convinced that I had and I had to get rid of it. And from that moment on, I just thought, oh my gosh, you know, and it became something in my head and uh, for the next six months I sort of would eat very little but get rid of it if I could and then um and then it just I just realized it was too obvious so reduced instead and just restricted and restricted and that was the way my eating sort of um developed from there on in um 
so it was a combination of that but then I guess the cult the third thing is the cultural climate we lived in like you know I, I guess when I developed my eating so there was no social media so I, I can't say I was influenced by Instagram or um what I see in magazines too much it was really um in fact my parents didn't even my family didn't even know what eating disorder was when I came back from Australia and um you know I looked quite quite good for a, a few a few weeks um I you know blonde you know tanned and just got off the beach and um lost a bit of weight and everyone's like oh wow you look great and then you know slowly they realized that actually I couldn't just stop losing the weight it just kept coming off and off and off so um I guess it was you know genetic my my makeup my characteristics um a trauma that I just did not know how to process um the cultural climate I guess I always felt you know that um to be accepted by my father my real father and to get attention i needed to be thin um successful so it was a combination of things it's not one thing um yeah, yeah. i guess if that gives any information yeah, for as to sure because <laughs> yeah, it's just interesting the trajectory and often there is trauma right so i'm i've got alcohol addiction issues and it's kind of pinpointing that there there's a genetic predisposition 100% uh, there's a cultural thing. You can't go anywhere without booze in this country, right? It's kind of the people, people work around that. Uh, and there's some trauma in my life. So it's interesting the, the similarities of what, whatever kind of disorder it is, sometimes it's us just trying to cope with a difficult thing that we're unable to cope with in a, in a different way. And that can help us kind of have compassion for people who, who are suffering, essentially. Um, so, so just talk us through your, your dark times, I guess, like how bad did it get for you in order for you then to be desperate enough and your parents be, to be desperate enough to, to sort of ship you off to a whole other continent to get the support you needed? Mm -hmm. I guess, um, yeah, we got quite a bad. I wanted to take my own life a few times. Um, I crashed my car. I fainted on the tube. Um, I, but aside from the physical aspects, I just couldn't bear to live the way I was living anymore. I mean, I was just like a walking zombie. Um, I, I guess there was a lot of self-punishment around, around Michael, my stepfather's death. I, um, or it didn't matter how many people told me that I didn't need to feel this way, but he really was sort of brought me, brought me up, really was my father. And, um, uh, when he died, it was very sudden and there were many things that I wished I had, could have said to him and I had planned to say to him and I never got that opportunity and I think not having closure um, really affected me and I felt like the only way I could uh, make it up to him for, t you know, not telling him I loved him enough, etc., was to repent in a way <laughs> and punish Fine. myself yeah. um, and show him that if I was, you know, if I hurt myself enough that I was really sorry. Um, and it was a record that my eating sort of just played around and around again. And now in hindsight, I think I was a 16 year old. I didn't do anything wrong. Like, sure. you know, um, I loved him and we got on, but you know, you don't always get to wrap things up in a nice little bow. And, and that, and that is really difficult for me. Closure and goodbyes without not having, you know, having it, um, neat and tidy. So I, I didn't know how to process that. And I, I guess I used it as a way to punish myself. And then alongside that, I, I desperately craved attention from my real father and, um, was battling against sort of um, a dynamic or a relationship with him and um, his new wife. And, and, um, and I felt that the only way to, for him to love me or to show me love was to get sick. And that would be what, but it really, it was just worry. It was negative attention. And we have a great relationship now <laughs> as a healthy person. But to me, um, you know, being a child and uh, which needing sort of keeps you very much stuck in, I, um, I, I, I equated worry or concern with, with love. Um, 
and so it was you know there were some really dark times and um I guess it got to you know when I was 27 and and I just you know I was taking sleeping tablets at night because I just couldn't get to sleep I was so hungry I was not functioning at work I had to quit work I was just like a, a I don't know I how do I describe it? I was just, I felt like there was a terrorist in my head. I completely felt like I was hostage and I did not know how to get out. And I often described it as a terrorist, just with, you know, just chaining me somewhere. And, and though I just, I guess having it for so long, it was ingrained in me as well. It had become habitual. Um, so I, I describe it as sort of speaking Arabic and not knowing how to speak English anymore. I just, my, my, my brain just did not compute. Um, there's also food there's also- or emotion or, there's, there's also Second. a lot of shame, isn't there? There's a lot of shame because you're hiding things and maybe people are trying to help. And, and again, you've started university and working and, you know, trying to be normal in quotation points, right? Um, and and, and the, the, what's the hiding aspect of it? Like, it, it sounds like there's a lot of shame there as well. Yeah, I was an incredibly secretive person. Um, I was a, became a great liar. I'm like, you know, now I, I can't lie about anything. <laughs> it's just, um, you know, I, I have such a conscience, um, but in your eating disorder, you'll do anything. I guess it's, you know, the same as narcotic or druggies. You'll do anything to protect your, your, your thing. Yeah. Um, yeah. I don't, I don't think it is an addiction. I think there's, uh, that, that's one of the story. I don't think an eating disorder is an addiction, but it's definitely, um, uh, you can relate to it in a way um it's um but it was it was just I was just such a manipulator you know and people walked on eggshells around me and and the people affected you know my mom still is affected um by it not just financially but um but mentally you know as a, as a growing woman now she worries about me way more than I suppose the average person because for so many years she didn't know if I was going to wake up or not um so it has a domino effect around uh, of the people around you um but you know now i'm i'm through the other side i actually could say i'm quite grateful for my eating disorder because i just never thought i would be able to say that and right. and the relationships and the people that i have in my life now um and the way i am as a human in the world is a is is quite incredible um but so, yeah it, it took um let me just i want to circle back to your gratitude around it because that's pretty fascinating um but talk us quickly through the recovery uh, period. So you do go to a very, it sounds like you've, try, you've tried to get help several times, several hundred times maybe, um, through the NHS, or, and you said you just weren't sick enough, which can be really um, distressing to be like, you're not bad enough inside, you're, you're describing it as a terrorist in your head, right? And, and you're, it's just not ticking particular boxes. So, so you're not even enough of a sick person to get the help that you need. Yeah, for sure. How, how terribly frustrating. Yeah, I mean, I remember um, driving to High Barnet. Um, I've been referred to the St. Anne's, the, the eating sorts clinic there. And I, I drove up there feeling quite, you know, reluctant to go or anxious and walked in there. And all I saw was um, girls with drips in their noses and, um, you know, tubes up their noses. And, and then I had to wait in reception and called in. And, and I saw someone for, I don't know, 20 minutes. And she had like a Filofax folder and she just asked me, a tick box exercise basically about everything I'd already spoken about with the GP. Um, and then at the end kind of shook her head and said, mm, 
well, I think I could probably offer you like half an hour every six weeks um, with a consultant and um, I'll try and get you to see the dietitian if that's possible. And um, and I just went and sat in my car in the car park and burst into tears and, and just thought, geez, man, like you don't really don't think I'm ill enough. Like what have I got to do? And um, yeah, I drove off there and I embarked for the next by four or five months on a, a getting even sicker so yeah it was a message um <laughs> that was um pretty hard to swallow um and I had an exercise addiction as well I you know I but this is something I always talk about I, I remember I lived in in archway in London and uh I remember setting my alarm for like five in the morning so I could go walk up to the swimming pool and do you know my ridiculous amount of lengths I had to do before I went to work and I remember waking up and it was snowing that day and I was so tired and I just like I, I don't know how I'm gonna do this I just and I was like no you're gonna do this and the eating sort of so powerful that I put on my wellies and trudged up to the swimming pool uh, and I was the first one outside obviously because no other nutter would be like going to swim at that time and I was in the pool on my own and I forced myself to do you know all the laps that I had told myself I would do and then went back home got ready went to work and was exhausted um I thought this is such a lonely, sad life. What am I doing? Um, and 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 I guess uh, those kind of times when I reflect back now, I think, my God, I would, I just, why would I would never do that to myself anymore? Um, but I just, you know, I couldn't. I went and saw the dietitian, uh, and he was useless. He didn't tell me anything that I didn't know and didn't really understand. And I had an appointment with him, you know, every once a month so I didn't really get anything on the NHS privately when I could afford it and my family could afford it I went to a couple of day day patient clinics which were great uh, some were some were good some weren't um some were 12 step which I don't really think works for me personally or for, for eating disorders it's quite different from alcoholism but I got some support in those kind of groups um but it was always the same Petra like I would go to these groups I would talk about all the traumatic things and all the things that were I was not able to process and then I'd go home and have to eat this food and it's just I just you know I just couldn't do it because all the stuff that had come up was then then I was faced with food and I just couldn't do it um on my own some people can and you know my experience is only my experience but going somewhere um it got to, yeah I guess it got to the point and I just gave up and I just thought please help me like if there's any way I I guess I had got I felt like I'd got to rock bottom a few times but this time you know my whole all my friends were moving on having babies getting married and there I was still living my lonely life and I thought I'd rather die than carry on into my 30s like this uh, so I was willing to do anything and um thank god I was able to go to America um what was different about that recovery program because you tried different things and obviously it was immersive you were there yeah. for eight months you were inpatient, so it was all about you and your recovery. What were the key factors, do you think, that, that supported you? Yeah, there were definitely some fundamentals that were different there. Um, yeah. One, the woman who founded it, she had recovered from anorexia herself um, about 20 years previously. She's quite world-renowned now in the world of eating disorders. And originally, um, in the 70s, 80s, she, she created a place that she had wished had existed when she was trying to recover. So she literally just bought a house in a cul-de-sac, and it's a six-bed house, and um, she she just made it a home it is a home it's not clinical it's not a hospital it's just like walking into someone's house with a kitchen and you know um and there's only room for six people uh and a garden and 
she then filled it, which is another thing that was quite controversial at the time. She did, but she she filled it with a ratio of, I don't know, maybe 40, 60 of, of um, therapists who had recovered themselves from an eating disorder. So my therapist had recovered herself from an eating disorder. So had the clinical director. Not everyone had, um, but it made a huge difference. And, and fundamentally, when I had the first call with Carolyn, Mm. Yeah, when I had the first call with Carolyn when I was in America, about it, when I was in the UK, I spoke to her about whether to come to the treatment center. And um, and the first, I read three pages of her book into, um, and burst into tears. And then when I had the phone call with her, I thought the same thing. This woman gets it like no one else had. She spoke my language. She'd been there. She could tell me that, you know, I've seen thousands of clients like you, Laura. They can get well. You can get well. I'd never had that message. I, you know, I had every professional known to man, but I never had anyone who could act as a guide, a role model, or say, "Look, this is going to be really tough, but it's totally better on the other side." And so when I went there, um, and that was the thing that made me want to go there, to be honest. And when I went there, and I saw, you know, people who had recovered, living their life, and um, and, and they understood me, they spoke my language, they knew all the tricks of the trade, I couldn't manipulate them. Um, they were supportive, nurturing, they showed me, um, they gave me a meaning and a purpose outside of my eating disorder. I processed all the grief, the trauma, um, but I had to eat the food. I, you know, I had to eat that goddamn food and be contained. And so it wasn't like I could go home and skip or something, skip something after a day's hard therapy processing. I still had to go to the table and eat my snacks and dinner. Um, was that, and was fundamentally, that was that. Was, was there ever conflict when when it came to the the, the actual eating of the food, despite the the good or oh the environment? Yeah, there was there was conflicts. In fact, several conflicts. And one of the therapists said, "My eating disorder was a mother fucker because it was that entrenched." Yeah. Um, they took me into the garden one time and just called me out and like was like, "Laura, you're not scared of that." there's a lot I can't don't know if I can swear but there's a lot of expletives that could be was told to me um because my eating was so strong but they kind of knew how they understood it and they knew how to get around it and and at first I think this this was quite difficult at first they were um quite um tactile around meal times so you know we'd have two therapists at each side you know at the end of the tables and then we would sit the we would sit in, in the middle between them. And um, often the therapist would sort of reach out to me, put a hand on me if I was struggling or crying. I, you know, I spent three weeks crying into every plate of my food. Um, and, then, and then it got to a point where I, they clocked on that the more they did that, the more it was feeding my eating disorder. My eating disorder thrived on attention. Um, and I felt, and it, and it worked by thinking that if I made you know, it looked like I was really distressed or upset, which I was quite a lot of the time. But if they, if they reacted to that and fed it, then I would always know that the only way I was going to get attention was to look like I, you know, to struggle in my eating disorder. And so they took me aside one time and said, Laura, like, you know, this isn't that we don't care, but we are not going to pay attention to you at the table. You need to engage with the other, the other girls. Yeah. Telling you is the crucial difference though, because then you can still feel held and like, they're not just ignoring you. Right. Yeah, for sure. No, yeah, yeah. Um, they, they, like you, we need, to, you need to engage with the girls at the table, play the games. Um, we understand that your eating disorder needs us to give it attention, and you to get a buddy, you have to know that you can, you can get your needs met and 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 still be loved and cared for without it. And it was like 
oh, it's like a knife going into me at first when I was really struggling and never, I felt everyone was ignoring me. But slowly I, I got out of it and I started to engage and, and I realized I got more attention and, and more um, kindness and engagement by actually being a human being and engaging with the other girls. They didn't like seeing me suffer and everyone was suffering. But for me to have special attention um, was really not helping me at all. And I think... They're the kind of, there was so many nuances, Petra, so many things that they knew, but that's just one example of how the treatment that they knew it because they, they have been, some of them have been through it. Um, and eventually, you know, I, I saw Lindsay, my therapist, and she'd go home and walk the dogs after being at the therapy center and, she, you know, at the clinic and she'd um, go home to her boyfriend and come in and say, what a great night she had the night before. And I was like, oh my God, I want that. Like, I, you know having a life eventually became more important to me than staying stuck in my eating disorder. And I'm sure I had to process the grief and get rid of that repetitive record that's going through my head that I need to punish myself or repent. But I was always done it or always did it in like a caring, nurturing way, but they were pretty, they were pretty um, harsh at times as well, but that's, you know, you have to be, you can't pussyfoot around an eating disorder. It will, yeah, yeah, you have to really take it by the horns and, and <laughs> get angry with it because it's a, it's a prime manipulator. And if you pussyfoot around it, and I think some of the treatment centers, you know, do that here, um, you know, yeah. you're never going to get rid of it. <laughs> yeah. So it's, you have to recognize that it's fucking with your life and you've got to make a stand and do something different, to, which is incredibly hard. So you spend eight months there. What was the like the, are you cured what was the transition like I know there's a you, you've got to maintain and it's always you know something that might be in the back of your mind do you feel like you can you're fully cured or what is your what, what was your maintenance strategy just to transition from that caring home into the fucking real world yeah it was it was difficult um but I, what they also provide there was a transition house. So instead of going from like a womb where you are completely like, you know, in a protective bubble because it's not the real world. I then spent um, about six weeks in, in the transition house, which was uh, maybe a mile or so from the, from the other house. And I would go back uh, for my sessions um, every day. And um, there were, I mean, it worked on a level system in the actual treatment center, so level one to four. To four. And level one is where, you know, you're um, completely uh, immersed in there. You don't, you know, you, you can't go into the kitchen or prepare food. And then slowly as you, you, you have, um, you're accepted onto the next level, you have to demonstrate um, certain goals really um, that you've achieved and it's not all around just your weight it's around whether you've achieved goals with with your group etc like so for example I always used to get dressed in my um, tracksuit bottoms and didn't make any effort because for me it was easier to to be like that and um, I was like well I'm not going anywhere why do I need to make an effort and then one of the con one of the goals I had that week was you know you have to get up every day before breakfast and present yourself at the table and get dressed properly and I hated it I was like, what's the point? But that, so it was about sort of building up my self-esteem. They wanted me to go out and get some new clothes and things like that. And um, so eventually when you get to level four, you can go out on, on a pass and you can go to the cinema or whatever and have a bit more independence. So you don't go from nothing to then the transition house. So once I, once I was on level four, I spent a bit of time there and I was quite independent making my own food and stuff in the house. And then I spent, uh, yeah, about six weeks in the transition house where I just go back and wean myself off. But, and really some people spent a year in the transition house, but you know, that was the luxury they had to afford it and to live in America. Um, 
so then coming back to the UK was was pretty tough. I, I didn't really want to. I was desperately sad. I'd made a community there. I'd been there for eight months. Um, You've got but, your old uh, and, and, Sorry? You've got your old triggers as well when you come back to your own kind of neck of the woods. Yeah. Yeah, I remember walking into my flat, I shared flat, and I was like, oh my God, this I feel so lonely. No one knows what I, you know, you've been somewhere for eight months in an experience, and it was difficult. And then going back into, into like the world's busiest newsroom, um, walking down those stairs into like the pit of like everyone running around in the news, it was, yeah, it hasn't been, it hasn't been easy. But, um, you know, slowly I have rebuilt my life and, um, gone back to work and and the, the foundations of what they laid there you know I've I've pretty much kept myself um well um it's not and I think it's because you know over there they 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 fed my soul and they fed my mind they didn't just feed my body and over here from my experience there are some great places here I think exist but from my experience all, all, all they focused on within me was you know feed your body feed you know put the weight on put the weight on what number are you on the scales and the amount of relapse rates over here are, are huge because if you don't sort the head out and the soul and everything that's going on between you can put the weight on but eventually you're going to go back to the way you were before it's like you know you, you um a prisoner walks out of, of, of prison with a with a you know a clean film bag of all his belongings and he goes back into an environment and unless he's been given the tools and the education or removed from that environment, he's gonna end up back in. So I don't think it's financially that economical the way the treatment model over here works. But um I was yeah, I, I have, you know, in the last when did I I came out in twenty twelve, so I guess it's been a little while now and I have um grown and and every day I'm still learning about myself and how to keep myself well and it hasn't been you know I, have, I can't say it's been 100% stable the whole time I've had some dips but the dips have never been the way they were before um and I know I will never have that opportunity to go back into that place again some people do have have returned because they've they've relapsed but I financially it will never ever be an option for me and also I don't even want to go back there even if it was an option. You know, I, I did go back about three years ago. We had a retreat and I went back and I spoke to a couple of the clients in there as someone who had been in there before. And, and I walked in there and I, it, was so, it was so warm and everyone was so lovely. But did I want to be there again? No. I didn't want to be sitting around there crying in front of my jacket potato, whatever oh, it was. No. no, of course not. So what are one or two of the things that you try and consistently do to keep yourself well. So if somebody's struggling, what are some of the practical ways that you maintain uh, your, your mental health or recovery from the eating disorder? Yeah, okay, so honesty. And I have been guilty of this myself about being in denial at times. I, I mean, everyone's eating disorder is different and everyone's recovery is different. But for me, I've noticed that if I get really busy, and overwhelmed, I get into a negative place, which spirals into thinking, I can't do all this. I get anxious. Anxiety feeds my eating disorder. Um, and so I've had to let go, especially in the last six months, I've realized I can't do everything. Um, and to prioritize and not to get into a negative space. And that has required honesty by having some home truths told to me, like, this is your pattern. You get like this and it affects your recovery. So I... I, you, an eating sort of thrives in secrecy. Um, and so everything I do now has to be about honesty and just being authentic. So whatever I write or say, I, I just don't hide behind a facade anymore. Um, and I talk and I've, you know, I've, I've realized that when you take the eye off my eye off the ball, so I stopped having a therapist for, um, 
a good year because I thought, you know, I'm doing really well now. Why do I need a therapist? And then slowly realizing that actually I do need a therapist still and recently got one, but to keep me on track, just to keep me um, accountable, um, to stop my negative thinking going back in. So I have found that's, you know, something that I need to do. Um, connections, they always said that relationships will keep you well. So I can tend to isolate. I quite like my own time, my own space, and I'm quite shy, and I don't like being in big groups. But um, I have always, even you, I remember I shared this with you when we went to this event. I was like, my natural instinct is to avoid big things. Yeah. But every time I go I and I come. see someone, must come. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's making the effort to like, you know, get yourself out of there, um, which is kind of like a bit of a parallel because I'm quite an adventurous so you know I'll do skydiving or bungee jumping if you told me to do that tomorrow I've done them I'll do them again but some things about being in groups or large groups of people like I am yeah it's difficult so it's being seen isn't it yeah yeah being seen and heard and um valued um and for me, I, I'm, I really need space in the countryside to clear my head. I'm very much um, an animal person and being with the horses really helped me. Um, so yeah, I mean, I, I honestly sleep. I find sleep if I don't, if I'm tired, I get emotional and I don't um, function very well. Not overwhelming myself, making sure I get enough time out in space in, in the countryside for me and, and the relationships and, um, and yeah. Cool. 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 Those are the really good practical tips that I think can apply to so many people going through so many different things. Uh, so two final questions for you, Laura. First one, where can people find you if they want to connect? Cause I know you do speaking on these topics and I know you work for the BBC, but you also have your, your own sort of side hustle, should we call it? Where can people find you first of all? Yeah, so my platform is Jigsy's Place. Uh, so that's J-I-G-G-S-Y, um, Jigsy's Place, um, which is originally was just an art blog that I created for people to share stories, um, experiences, hope and messages of, of their eating disorder and mental health. Um, and it might sound a bit cliched, but I call it Jigsy's Place because it's one big jigsaw where I, I guess I never felt like I fitted in. Um, and when I came back from America, I really wanted to create a place where everyone could, you know, share their piece in the puzzle, I guess, and, and create one big global jigsaw where everyone felt like um, they read someone else's story or saw their picture or image or creation and would, 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 would relate. Um, so you can find me on Jigsy's Place and then uh, my website is also the same um, where I do recovery coaching and also, you know, you know, I do lots of um, speaking around mental health in the workplace and how to transition back into the workplace and to, and to navigate um, areas within sort of confidence and identity and rebuilding yourself after a mental yeah. health issue. Yeah. So yeah. And you're sort of paying it forward, that idea that, of, you know, what was useful for you was somebody who'd been through it and could now coach them through it rather than just, I say just as a clinician, somebody who's studied it, um, and you're you're essentially able to coach people through that from that very personal uh, perspective with all that you've learned. And so, uh, finally, you mentioned that you're grateful for your eating disorder. Tell us about yeah. that. What make? Why are you grateful for it? Because people might look back and go, "That was eight months of my life," and it was much longer than that. That was eight months of recovery, but a hell of a lot many years of, of dealing with trauma and all the rest of it in your own way. Why are you grateful for your eating disorder? Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, it took half, my, robbed me of half my life, I guess. And uh, 
and yeah, eight months in inpatient treatment and then and then recovery ever since really. But my God, like Petra, I am such a better human being. I'm I'm more loving, I'm um I feel content in myself. I guess um Carolyn, the founder of the place, she always calls um your body a um your suitcase for your soul. And I feel kind of okay in my suitcase. Yeah, I'm grateful that I now have the connections that I have, the opportunities that I have to feel content in myself, to feel that I can live in this world without, um, without needing to use unhealthy coping mechanisms to get my needs met. I'm a much kinder, wholesome person, probably a lot nicer to be around and, and feel self-confident and know what I want from, from the world and from my life. And, and, um, and I don't believe I'd met lovely people like you and all the other people without having it so uh, yeah for sure I'm, I'm grateful now uh, and I'm so grateful to have met you because I agree with it myself that it's the adversity that we face the challenges that we face that turn us into who we really need to be and allow us to focus on the purpose that can help us impact so many lives I'm so proud of you Laura and I'm yeah. so proud to know you thank you so much thank you for having Thanks for listening to the Adversity to Advantage podcast. Please do subscribe and review on iTunes. Every comment makes a difference. We really appreciate hearing from you. And please do get in touch through petrabelzebor.com if you're interested in any training, coaching, therapy, or just to join the community and get more information on ways that you can build your own resilience. Until next time.